Welcome to the first ever episode of Eyes on Golf. I'm your host, Jeff Eisenband. If you're here, you probably either have an interest in golf or are my grandma. So thank you for listening and thank you for giving this podcast a try. What do I set out to do on this podcast? Well, as a PGA Tour broadcaster, a golf broadcaster for PGA Tour Live, among other places, I want to be able to talk about golf beyond just what I'm able to do on air. I want to be able to talk about the news and information in golf, the stories going around golf, maybe the business aspects of golf. I want to interview the compelling figures of the golf world, maybe the famous ones, maybe the ones that you might not know that are able to tell unique stories and have interesting backgrounds within the sport. If you like everything I just said or just anything, any little piece of what I just said, feel free to give us a like on social media or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. As for this podcast, our first guest, it's an individual who... I've been lucky enough to call a friend and a colleague over the last couple of years. He's made 129 starts on the PGA Tour. I don't want to say that he is done making starts right now quite yet, but he has become an exceptional broadcaster out there. Andre Gonzalez, you might have known him in his playing days for his Kenny Powers look, his personality out there, engaging the fans, also his stellar game, not just his pro game, but we'll go back and talk about his amateur and collegiate career as well. And I think all of that has come together to make him, like I said, a compelling, interesting, unique, different broadcaster who's been able to offer opinions and also offer insight into current players that he played with. Also offer up an incredible, what I call a linebacker physique on camera or on air, whether it be on PGA Tour Live on ESPN Plus with me or whether it be out there in the PGA Tour radio sphere. We also talk about his new PLT golf community, which all he said you need to know about that is beer and gear. So we're going to get into that. Hopefully this will be the longest that I ramble on any of these podcasts to start because this is the pilot, because this is the first episode. But without anything more, let's get into it. Our first ever guest on Eyes on Golf. It's Andre Gonzalez. Enjoy. We are here now with the one-time PGA Tour Canada winner, the two-time Corn Ferry Tour winner, and the allegedly self-proclaimed half-man, half-amazing Andre Gonzalez. Dre, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jeff. That was a nice little introduction, bringing back the old good memories down old memory lane. I love it. Well, we're going to talk about a lot of those throughout the uh throughout the program here today that still doesn't have a name yet but uh we're working with eyes on the pro eyes on the eyes on golf right now we're trying to trying to see if if dre of eyes on hits e-i-s-o-n but we'll see yeah in in terms of your brand the andre gonzalez brand right now someone says to you they see you in an airport they see you somewhere on the street they say hey who are you you're andre gonzalez what do you do what do you tell them uh, I tell them that I'm in golf broadcasting. I am oh. in golf brand apparel, and okay. I'm a dad of three, so I'm just trying to balance all of that, as well as a part owner in a distillery up in Washington. So there's a lot there, but for you know, roughly probably two decades, you told people that you were a professional golfer, or your goal when you were in college was to become a professional golfer. So how has the transition been right now to broadcaster from player uh it's been really good i've enjoyed it for sure it's a nice transition moving from golf to broadcasting it's the only field that i could have 
kind of transferred over to where I'm immediately considered an expert. If I was going to go into carpentry or uh, mortgage Distillery. sales or yeah, just anything really, <laughs> I was going to start at the bottom. And so this, it was a nice way to kind of ease into figuring out who I was and what I was doing after golf. But I think just like every other athlete on the planet, once you start playing, there's a little bit of uh, downtime slash depression and uncertainty and trying to figure out who you are as a human when you've identified as a golfer for 16 years for me. I mean, it's now been about two years that you're in this position as a golf broadcaster. You know, I've known you in those two years. That first year, last year, I know you still played in 2022. You played in at least one Corn Ferry Tour event. There was still a little bit there. 2023, we did the Memorial Tournament together. You tried to make it all the way back to the Seattle area to play. I was I was looking up, I was on kayak looking up flights to try to get you to transfer in Chicago at that point. So there's still this lingering amount of playing that's still there. So how do you balance that life? A lot of it is kind of transferring it over into the business world. It's still a big part of who I am. It's still a way that I have a, a chance to get some kind of revenue stream coming in. But I, I, you can't just stop doing it, man. I absolutely love playing golf. I wish I was still doing it, but it just kind of got to the point where I wasn't playing as well as I was early on in my career. And I've got three kids now. It's not like I'm single or even married with my wife traveling around. I've got to provide. And so I had to I had to step away because I wasn't about to sacrifice my family over playing golf. Well, let's go back to where it started. Playing golf. You're growing up. Kid in the state of Washington. You know, people look at you now. They, they, they probably some people probably think you were a former linebacker or did WWE or something like that. <laughs> what was this this kid growing up? How did he get into golf, young Andre Gonzalez? Uh, I started playing when I was about eight, but I was the kid that threw tantrums on the golf course. I would get very frustrated. I'd throw clubs. I'd be crying half the time. And my dad finally just said, nobody wants to play with you if you're going to act like this. So I was like, well, that's fine. I don't have to play. <laughs> so for about five years, I didn't play. And every day my dad would ask me if I wanted to go out and hit some balls or go play nine holes. And finally, when I was 13, I said, yeah. And when I went out there, I beat my dad the first time back out. And I was thinking that this is a pretty good game if my dad can't beat me at it. And he beat me a couple more times or a couple of times, I guess, there moving forward. But it was one sport that I excelled at, and I could beat my dad, and there wasn't anything he could tell me about it. So I was the boss of the family in that sport. Now, there was a big reason, I believe, when you were 11 years old that led you down the golf path, maybe more so than other sports. What happened then? Yeah, I broke my neck when I was 11 years old, so... I was always a bigger guy than the average human. So I, I was thinking I was getting ready to go into middle school. I was going to start playing football, but couldn't get cleared to do it uh, from a doctor physically when I went in and got my physical. I thought I might be able to do it later on, but no doctor would ever clear a young man to play football after breaking his neck. So it was baseball and golf. I skied quite a bit growing up, and that's kind of what I stuck to. Um, I look back and wish I could have maybe played some high school football, but then I would have gotten some kind of ambition, I'm sure, and <laughs> tried to take it to a higher level and the highest level I could, which probably would have been college. Who knows? Maybe 
No, I'm not even going to act like I'd be two year a practice squad player, no. maybe or no, something. No, I you know? have you seen these guys? They're monsters, man. I'm not <laughs> about to go out there and start banging bodies. So I'm very glad that I was never able to play football now, even though it was disappointing back then that I couldn't. And I do want to. Would you mind sharing how that neck injury, you know, came to be? It was not playing sports exactly that it happened. No, I uh, was at a lake called priest point lake up in idaho and i was with some family friends the schwarman family and i okay. it was just a crystal clear lake and so when the boat was docked it was one of those lakes that you could walk out 200 yards and still be up to your chest in in water but i when it was docked i was thinking it was about six feet deep when i jumped into the water feet first mind you I thought that it was six feet deep, but it was only three feet. So when I landed, my knees were locked. I hit the ground way sooner than I thought. It just, everything lined up and just compressed my spine and broke my neck. Walked around for three days with it because I was always taught that if nothing's sticking out and you're not bleeding, just rub some dirt on it. You'll be just fine. And three days later, we went into the hospital, found out that I had uh, broken C4 in three different locations. I mean... So that may, that checks out a lot why you said you couldn't play football. Yeah. But still playing golf, and you mentioned baseball and skiing, was that an injury that was still – I mean, you still have some of the scars today. Was that an injury that was affecting you even playing golf in high school? No. I was very fortunate that none of my spinal cord was ever damaged. It was just fractured on C4 and three different spots around it. If it would have – it got the spinal cord. Maybe there would have been some lingering effects, but I'm one of the lucky stories, man. I don't have any lingering effects from it. I still have complete rotation and mobility of my neck. Um, no, very, very fortunate. You'd think that there may be some extra torque just with the rotation and turning of the body when you're playing golf, but I've never had any effects from it. Very lucky. So then you're playing in high school and this is, I mean, people got to know Washington state, High school around this time is stacked. You got Dre, you got the Putnam brothers around, you've got Ryan Moore. What was that competitive experience like? Well, Andrew Putnam, who's a world beater right now, I think he's 40th in the world at the moment. Um, he was five years younger than Michael and I. So at that point, it was... You were crushing Ryan, him. Yeah, he, at the time, yeah. But <laughs> we, we were all well aware that Andrew was a pretty good player. He was just younger and not playing in our age group and just couldn't hit as far. So at that point, I had his number. Uh, but whose numbers I didn't have was Ryan Moore and Michael Putnam. Ryan was the best player in the country as a junior, best player in the country as a collegiate player, an amateur. Uh, went out, he's won five times now on the PGA Tour. He was the best. And I don't want to say that Michael wouldn't, but I don't think I would have uh, ever been as good of a player without being under Ryan and Michael. We used to travel together to AJGA events and we'd get two queen beds and then one roll away. And the highest round each day had to sleep on the roll away, which was typically me. And I don't think Ryan ever slept in it. He, he had a bed every single round that we played. That's why he still looks so clean kept nowadays. You know, he's got the he's got that that perfect true clothing to him right now. He's still oh, he's well rested, <laughs> well rested guy in those beds. 
I mean, did you feel, was, was he the tiker to your fill a little bit when it was, uh, you know, playing those high school events, coming down the wire, playing those AGA events? 100%. I don't know if he was, if I, I, I don't know if I was filled to his tiger because I wasn't finishing second or third. I was kind of a late bloomer and was good enough to get into some of these tournaments, but I was never really threatening to win and just slowly improved, slowly improved. And really and feel lucky that I was able to play around them and enjoy the process of learning how to get better because I don't think I was a gifted golfer by any means, but I had the ability to kind of stick at it. And my mind was, was what kept me going more so than like physical prowess on the golf course. Well, you still got to play division one golf right away, go right to the PAC 12 Oregon state. You got Ryan over at UNLV. What happened in that? One year, not to not to bury the lead, the one year at Oregon at Oregon State. I had the most fun of my entire life. <laughs> I would sleep in through class. I would go work out. I'd go play golf. I'd go get some food, get ready for the evening and partake in whatever college had to offer that evening. And I'd wake up and I'd do it all over again. It wasn't the most productive time in my life, golf or uh, school scholastics, but man, I had a pretty good time. And for that reason, not attending school all that much, I was asked to leave. And that's when Ryan kind of jumped in and be like, man, you need to, you need to travel down here and check out the, check out UNLV. We grew up in Washington, just going to Oregon. It still rained quite a bit. He's like, it hasn't rained once here in Las Vegas all year long. And I, I was a little bit skeptical, mainly just because I didn't think that Coach Knight would take me after uh, being kicked off of a team. But he's like, I, I'll vouch for you and I'll see what I can do to get you in. And when I got there, Ryan kind of ran that team, just being the best player on the team. So I was very fortunate to have him in my corner. Yeah, you're talking about Dwayne Knight. You're talking about a very clean cut UNLV program that Ryan, you know, has to make this pitch for you and you're not necessarily proven as a golfer at that point. I didn't travel much. You've got a reputation that precedes you. How do you get there? And then on top of that, how do you overcome what happens right when you get to UNLV? Yeah, that was, man, you did some research on this. Um, (laughs) I'll give Colton the sleaze, you know, credit for doing most of the research. Right. So I, we'll just start with that story. I got there and I was still a partier. I, I was, I'm telling my parents I was going to transfer from Oregon State to UNLV after being kicked off of a team for partying and not really attending school was a little bit of a sell in itself. Um, but when I got down there, it was the first football game. I overindulged once again, and they wouldn't let me into the football game because I was too intoxicated. So I decided to jump over this fence. Of course. Take off from the police. Uh, I just came from... Oregon State, where they were a national power in football, UNLV at the time, even now, is not. So thinking I'm going to lose them in the crowd, there's no crowd to really lose the police in. And I get caught, arrested. I give them my fake ID, which was a bad idea. No, not a good choice. No, bad choices all around. And that was the beginning night where I – had this uh, minor in consumption, an MIP for 
you know, and evading police and all these charges, trespassing into the stadium. And the next day I needed to tell my coach and he gave me a third chance. And that's when my life started to get real. I started to take golf and school more seriously and started chasing the dream of, of playing some golf. You mentioned me doing my research. I have my notes just in quotes, the contract, which I think this is, let's call this the, the turning point for getting you to the PGA tour after the arrest, you stay at UNLV. What is what I will call the contract? So I not only told my coach, but I told my parents about the situation that was at hand. And my dad was hot, (laughs) not happy by any means. So he flew down immediately, canceled his schedule four hours after I told him it's a two and a half hour flight. He was in Las Vegas and we were in my coach's office and they had a contract saying that I would never be late for anything the next four years at school. I would never get below a 3.0 at school and I would never miss a class while I was at UNLV. And I had to put my name down on a piece of paper and sign this contract. And that's when, yeah, my life got real. I was very, on point as far as attending school. I think I missed one class the next four years. It was dead week of my senior year. And I won't tell anyone. It's okay. And I, I felt like I deserved it at that point. So <laughs> uh, it, yeah, it was just like a basic study up refresher. And so I didn't feel bad about it after four years. Um, but I, I wasn't late for anything and I didn't get below a 3.0. I made sure that all those things happened because I knew that this was kind of my last chance if I wanted to do anything athletically beyond the collegiate level. So how did you see your game over those next few years change to the point that it could become professional caliber? And with Ryan right there, how were you guys a one-two punch together? Uh, it wasn't really a one-two punch. It was mainly Ryan just <laughs> rope-a-doping people for all of college. I made sure that whatever he was doing, which was always the best, Ryan was, Ryan didn't have an alcoholic beverage until he was 21 years old. He was a, a rule follower and a good standard to set yourself by. He always Which is why re- he went to UNLV, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think he went there for the no rain is let's be honest here and, and shadow Creek and private planes that it's a pretty good incentive to get down there. Um, but I started doing whatever he did. I signed up for all the same classes that he had. We worked out together as a team. We lived together. So we drove back and forth everywhere as a team. We played golf every single day together because I knew that he was the best one in the country. And if I could be around him and feel like I could compete with him, then I would have a chance to be at a higher level. And that's kind of slowly what I did. I just, was Ryan Moore's shadow for the next two years while he was on the team and tried to emulate Ryan everything Moore's that he big did. big shadow. Yeah, big shadow. It's like late in the day, big, tall shadow. <laughs> one story, you told me once that every event that you would go to in college, the one-two finish would be Ryan Moore and Spencer Levine. Oh, I bet you they have more one-two finishes than everybody in the history of golf. It was... Very, very impressive. Spencer was at University of New Mexico, which was the same conference as us, Mountain West at UNLV. So our schedules were very similar. And I remember Ryan coming back 
from the Masters, and this is probably 2003, 2005. He played in two of them. I, I, uh, yeah. but, but, but he played with Phil Mickelson during one of the rounds. This was 2005 Masters. And he came back and he goes, you know, I've played with a lot of guys now. Played in the Masters a couple times, the U.S. Open. And he came back, and Spencer and Ryan were both still in college. He's like, Spencer's the best player I've ever played with up until this point. He's played with a lot of professionals now. And so that said a lot to me, saying that, in my mind, chasing these guys for all of my collegiate and amateur career, that I was on the right track because I I felt like there wasn't anything that they did that was really special. Ryan, I thought, was a very special putter. But as far as everything tee to green, there wasn't anything that was really impressive. They just didn't make a lot of mistakes. And so that's that was pretty cool to hear him say. What was Spencer like in high school and college? Uh, Spencer was a little volatile, I'd say. He's, he's grown up a lot since then, but he's obviously older, almost pushing on 40 now. So And still doing it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he's still like he won this year on the Corn Ferry Tour after Monday qualifying in. The guy still has a bunch of game, and it's just a matter of playing well at the right time and making sure that you're still loving the game. And that's that's a big key. And he's doing it. So I'm I'm proud to see that both of them are are still playing and playing at a very high level. Do you have a Spencer story that won't get anyone in trouble? Yeah, I can. Uh, I'll tell you a story. So we. It was the first time I started to play pretty well in college. And Ryan was leading University of Houston's tournament down where they now, or where they used to play it at Country Club of Houston or Golf Club of Houston. It used to be called Redstone. And Spencer and I are paired together that day. I end up finishing third in this event and Ryan finished first. Spencer may have finished second. I can't remember who finished second, but it didn't matter. I finished third. That's all I was worried about. But it's a big shotgun start, and I'm in the greenside bunker warming up in the morning, just the chipping green. Everybody's on the range, chipping green, putting green. And I'm hitting some bunker shots, and I just knife one out of there, and it's coming. And I just skull it out, hardly touch any sand, and it just drills Spencer in the back of the head. I mean, it's loud. It sounds like it hits a two-by-four. Now, Spencer and I have known each other since we were about 14 years old. He was close friends with my dad who has passed. He passed away in 2007. So he and I were very close and he turned around and he was about to chew somebody's ass. And when it happened, he turned around, he saw that it was me and he's like, take some more sand. I'm not going to give you lessons all day. (laughs) Take some more sand. And like just yelled at me and I felt so terrible. I was like, got it. Yep. That could have been way worse, but no, he's, he was, uh, he was on edge all the time. And I think that's one thing that made him so good. And it's still making him good. Like we said, one more event I want to talk about during your college days, the 2004 Western amateur, right? We're talking about a prestigious amateur event. I believe you were the stroke play medalist. You can tell me if I'm wrong about that. Uh, you're correct, but it was the year after it was Oh five. Okay. Oh five. Okay. Oh five. So what I was going to get crossed was, I think it was Oh four then that Ryan beat our friend James Nitties in the final of that Western amateur. Right. And that's in the middle of arguably the best amateur summer in the history of golf. Um, 
that was a very fun year to be playing amateur golf, especially as a close friend of Ryan. He went, he won our conference tournament, our regional tournament, uh, the NCAA championship. And then he proceeded every event that he entered in the summer. He won that too. The Sahali players championship, which James Nitty's finished second in also. Uh, the what a West, hack. Yeah. Right. The Western am the player, uh, the World Am, the US Am, the US Pub Links, everything he entered, he won. And then he came back to school, and the first tournament of the fall was New Mexico's tournament against Spencer. And he won the first tournament of the year at New Mexico's tournament. Spencer finished second. It was just a phenomenal run of golf. And I don't think you'll ever see anybody do that again because it was just six or seven months of just winning every tournament that you entered. Dre, before we talk about your pro career a little bit, I want to pause for a second because I obviously, I've been calling you Andre and Dre, and I basically called you Andres for a year before you corrected me. So what's your name? Uh, I introduced myself as both, but for the most part, all of my life, it's been Andre, Andre Gonzalez. Uh, The first time I got my PGA Tour card, I was being interviewed. It was the same question, just like this. What? how do you want us to say your name? I was like, Oh, my name's Andre or my friends all call me Dre. You're welcome to call me that. But I was like, but when I introduce myself to women, it sounds more exotic when I say Andres. So I started getting called Andres and it's very confusing. My parents always called me Andre. There's an S on the end of the name. So it, it says Andres and it's not incorrect. I, my parents would only call me Andres with the S when I was in trouble. So it it has some meaning to it when that S is thrown in there. But for the most part, Andre, I, I will answer to anything, though. So you're a multi-named individual is basically where we're at. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I throw the S in when it plays. So let's get to, to that pro career you're talking about. So a lot of early days, PGA Tour Canada, Corn Ferry days. What, what was How real was it when you started being a professional golfer? It was awesome. I I loved it just in the fact that now there wasn't as much to do. I was doing just as much when I was in college practicing, but I had other things that I needed to do to be able to play. I had to go to school. I had to make sure that uh, had to I was to the contract. Exactly. And I was probably a more well-rounded person at that time just because I – I had other things that were requiring my mental attention, but I really started to get good at golf in that first year. I had a nice first year of playing mini tours and I was on my own and it was on me to go out and practice and play and to make money. And that was like, that was the biggest goal. Once you turn professional, the way that you keep playing is that you have to fill your pockets up with some dough so that you can continue to go. And I love that process. I like being out there on the road with guys that have the same mentality and guys that were chasing the same goal. And that's kind of who I affiliated myself with was people along the way that were doing the same thing and wanted to work hard. And I, I love the whole process. So I, I love being a professional golfer. So you, you get a win on PGA Tour Canada. You keep moving along. PGA Tour Canada especially. Who were some of the, I guess, the guys in those hotel rooms, in the vans, in the buses, 
on the planes? Who did you <clears throat> travel around with back then? I had a really good group. I was fortunate enough to travel around with a bunch of Canadians. So I had a guy named James Love, uh, Graham Dillette, Barrett Jarosh. We had Andrew Parr, a guy named Mike Maisie. Drew Stoltz was a part of it as well uh, back right. when he was playing. And we would kind of all travel around together. We wouldn't stay with each other every week, but we would – you'd get – two or three guys that would stay together and then you'd switch it up the next week. So you never really got sick of each other. Um, and then we'd, whenever you'd go to these different Canadian events, a lot of these guys grew up in these towns. So most places in Canada have a basement and we would all have air mattresses and, and blankets and stuff that we would have eight people or six people, five people, whatever it may be in a basement of one of their parents' houses and just trying to save every dollar that we could. And that was the most fun I ever had playing professional golf, was playing on the Canadian Tour. It wasn't like you were making a ton of money. You, everybody was pretty broke and pretty frugal out there as far as how you were spending money. You're pretty much just paying the entry fee, going the next week, trying to eat whatever free food they're going to give you at the course. You may be able to go out for, for dinner and maybe drinks at – the end of the week when somebody plays well in your group, you're hoping somebody plays well in the group so that they take care of whatever that tab is that evening. But that I had so much fun up there and I really, really enjoyed playing Canadian tour at the time. Now PGA tour Canada. I'm imagining Miss Dillette bringing down the pizza rolls or something for you guys late at night, you know, pizza bagels. (laughs) (laughs) Now I was, I mean, a lot of guys you hear struggle with that mental side of the mini tours of smaller tours you know, you need to, like you said, be frugal. You're, you're, you're not living a life of luxury, but it feels like it was the opposite for you. It was more comfortable in a way for you. I really get along well with people. So the fact that we had a core group of eight friends traveling around together, I really enjoyed that. It felt like a little family on the road and trying to beat each other every single week. And when you have like-minded people that are working at the same coals, it doesn't feel like you're out there alone. It feels like you're all on the range hitting shots and it's more of a game and an experience than it actually is of going out and feeling like you're broke. We felt like we were the richest people in the world because we were able to live this dream with a light at the end of the tunnel of getting to the highest level. And, yeah, I wouldn't give it back that experience for anything. And everybody that I've heard that played Canadian Tour, they all really love the experience. And a lot of it has to do with it's it's a lot more simple. There's more camaraderie. Once you get to the PGA Tour, there's big money to be made. It's a business. So it people tend to go their different ways. And it's a different level in life, too. People are uh, traveling around with families, kids. There's more responsibility when you get off the course. So you're not really hanging out as much with your friends. And it's just a, a different stage of life, and it was really fun being young and playing ca- in Canada. You won the 2009 Saskatchewan Open. Who could forget, right? Yeah, nobody. At, in 2010, you do enough on the Corn Ferry Tour. You end up, you make it to the PGA Tour, I believe, for the first time in 2011. So you step into those first events on the PGA Tour. What is going through young Andre Gonzalez's mind? Terrified, honestly. <laughs> like, I had an un... So in 2010, I didn't have any status. 
I played in Canada. And so you won in 2009 and then didn't have any status in I didn't. I didn't have any status on Corn Ferry Tour. I won. I had status on Canadian Tour, but I was playing Canadian Tour and I tried nah, 13 Monday qualifiers that year in 2010. I had three PGA Tour Monday qualifiers and then 10 Corn Ferry Tour. And I got into one of the 13. And my highest round in any of those was 69. And it was the round that I shot 69 in that I got in through the Monday qualifier on Corn Ferry Tour. Of course, of course. So it was, that was a very frustrating year for me as far as knowing that I'm playing really well and just not really getting a lot out of it. And I was always thinking if I could just get into the event in these Monday qualifiers where I'm playing well, if you give me four rounds and I keep on putting up the numbers I'm doing, I'm going to finish pretty high. It was kind of that mentality that kept me going and knowing that if I could just get to Q school, I'm playing well enough that I could get through all these stages. That's what I did. I went the first stage, second stage, and then third stage is where I got my card when it used to be 25 cards at Q school back in 2010. And I finished 22nd and it was the best day of my life. It's still one of the best days of my life professionally that I've had just the, this, mountain that you've been climbing and finally getting to the top and knowing that you did it. And then it was a matter of the next couple months, just reassessing and be like, all right, now the work begins because yeah, you made it, but you haven't made a dollar yet. I think, and that's, and you know, bring up Q school, which is back this year, right? Five spots available this time around, not 25. I think we'll see that change too. I think that may go up a little bit just when they see, I don't know. We'll see. It's the, the, the tour is ever flowing and changing their rules, but I think Q school's such an awesome story when you can get, let's say someone like me was playing Canadian tour with nothing and then just go straight to the PGA tour. I think it's awesome. Well, and that maybe you mentioned being terrified, perhaps that could have added to it that you didn't even have that real consistent corn fairy tour experience. You jump from sleeping in basements to showing up at the course, Tigers park and his yacht down the street and now you got to play in the same tournament as him. Yeah, which is super exciting. I'm of that generation, and 97 was my freshman year of high school, and that's the year that he wins the Masters for the first time. I am of that youth and that movement, that Tiger movement that really got me into golf. Tiger made golf cool, and I I was all totally on board. I wanted to be cool. Now, you were really cool, Dre, that 2011 year. You started tweeting at Tiger Woods. I want to read some of the the old school tweets as young Andre Gonzalez, 12 years ago, tries to get Tiger Woods' attention, says, Tiger, as you probably know, my birthday was this week. I believe you owe me a night around a campfire with songs and s'mores. Ta-ta for now. You said that on May 19th. On May 14th, you had said, been awake since 3 a.m. Tiger Woods, you awake yet? Let's chat. He didn't respond to that. And there was another one. You said, anybody have a pill that will give me six pack abs sitting in my hotel room doing nothing. Tiger Woods, how do you look like that? Did Tiger ever respond in person? Uh, not about any of the tweets, but he, <laughs> we, we had chatted. Um, that all started just from exactly that comparing life on the 
Canadian tour and all of a sudden I'm thrust into the PGA tour around the best players in the world. And I, I knew that I was good enough to be out there, but still wasn't comfortable with any of it. And so it was kind of right when Twitter was becoming a thing. And I had drinks with a friend of mine and asked, I, I didn't really understand what Twitter was. So I was asking like, what is this for? I don't understand why people care what anybody else posts. She goes, well, you're a perfect example because now that you're on the PGA tour, people are going to want to know what you think or, or how you're doing out there. How's life? She goes, just think of something funny. Like maybe you should tweet Tiger Woods or something. And I had a beard in my mouth and I was like, that is a beautiful idea. <laughs> and so that's kind of what got it rolling. But the, the idea or the premise behind it was to compare Canadian tour, mini tour life, which is in retrospect, kind of the same as far as you're, you're playing totally. golf for a living and, and making money playing golf to the, ex, the highest person on the planet that's doing it. That's the most successful at it. And the, the questions and the, trials that I am dealing with are on a completely different level of maybe trying to find somebody that rookie year on the PGA tour that wants to split a hotel room so that we can split down, uh, cut down on costs. And he's flying in on his jet, going to his rental house with his chef that's already there. It's, it, it was a fun deal, but at, at some point it got to the, got to the stage where I was being asked more about the tweets than I was about golf. And I was starting to play some decent golf at the end of the year. And I was, I was like, I can't keep doing this. You never had like a secret service looking guy tap you on the shoulder and be like, Mr. Gonzalez, uh, Tiger would like you to stop. Nope. <laughs> nope. And it, it was noticed by a lot of the veterans that were on tour and they would come up and talk to me about it. And they all found it funny. So that gave me a little bit of confidence to keep on doing it. It wasn't much. I did it like once a week for a while, but it was... Well, you it was entertainment. You know, I, those tweets that I just read, you know where, who wrote the article that I found them in? Uh, Rick Riley. Rick Riley. You're talking about a peak golf journalist of the time in 2011, spent his time on ESPN.com writing about this. You said Tiger never said anything about it, but did he, did he communicate with you? It sounds like he at least, or, or did you play with him? Did you ever no. come into contact with him? No. Uh, we said, we, I mean, we said hello. We uh, saw each other at the Greenbrier. There was, and we, and he came up and said hello. And I wasn't wearing sunglasses. I always wear sunglasses when I play because I have very sensitive, beautiful green eyes. And he's like, Oh, I've never seen you without your sunglasses. I was like, Yeah, this is what I look like. He's like, Well, see you later. And then he left. I was like, That, that's, that was our communication. Um, we were at Court of All at the end of the season in the fall, uh, up in Northern California. And, it was kind of right at the peak of all of these tweets happening and tiger walks into the room and I just felt every single eye and player dining look over at me and I completely had nothing. I just put my head down. I was so embarrassed. I didn't know what to do. I should have just said the tiger. I got a spot. I got a spot, I got a spot. <laughs> but I didn't, I froze and yeah, that was a little tail between my legs moment in my life. 
I'm sure you'll be all right, Trey. I think I'm going to be just fine. Now, you talk about the sunglasses. Obviously, people looking at you on video right now, you've had the facial hair that has, I don't know, would you call it a handlebar? Would you call it a, a mustache? What would you call your facial hair? Yeah, a handlebar, Fu Manchu, whatever, 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 whatever floats, floats your, boat. your boat. Yeah. Exactly. And But that was, I mean, that was so much of a part of your personality out there on the PGA Tour. And we see, let's be honest, we see a lot of homogenous looks on the PGA tour, but you always stood out was how natural was that? And how much were you thinking about how you look to people on the outside? Uh, both. I, I, it was definitely thought out. It, I had this mustache. The first time I grew it was in 2005. And that was the year that Ryan graduated from UNLV. And all of a sudden this light bulb went off in my head that it's, it's my turn to be the guy. I wasn't playing for second place anymore. And I played really, really well that summer. And I got up to, I won a few times. And you mentioned the Western Am where I was medalist. I got up to number three amateur in the world before I went back to UNLV. And I kind of did the same thing Ryan did. Not, I didn't win everything, but. But two wins, I, I believe two wins your senior year in college. I had, I had one, one. one uh, yeah, but it was the same tournament. Ryan won the year before at New Mexico and I came back and, got it the next year that was my only win but it was kind of the time at UNLV so I had this mustache that entire summer and it literally started out as a joke but I played great so I just kept on rolling with it and then when we go to UNLV you're not allowed to have facial hair you're not allowed to have hair over your ears it was like kind of like the Yankees Mm -hmm. and so I had to shave, but as soon as I got back out and turned professional, I was like, I'm bringing that back. And then I had a great start to my, my professional career playing mini tours. So it's been a part of me ever since then, 2006. And I don't, yeah, I haven't been clean shaven in a long time, buddy. I mean, it wasn't just, it's a long hair, the long facial hair. It's something that, you know, became a part of you during your time on tour. I was very aware that my golf game was good enough to be on the PGA Tour, but I wasn't threatening to win every single week. I needed to stand out a little bit. I wanted to make myself marketable for sponsors, and I knew that I needed to do something that was going to be beyond golf to supplement the mediocre play that I had on the PGA Tour. So. I knew that this was going to be marketable and that it was going to make me stand out. Um, and then I get along with people. So standing out, getting along with people, flashing a smile to people along the ropes. I was, I was aware of how the business worked and I wanted to, to give myself the best opportunity to succeed. Yeah. And we've talked about this a little bit. I mean, when you look back, do you feel sort of, do you have any regrets or do you feel <clears throat> comfortable with the way that you focused on that personality and persona as opposed to, you know, maybe just head down, grind all the time, focus on myself, try to fade into the shadows. You know, would your game have been any different? Would your life have been any different? Uh, maybe a little bit, but no, I mean, I, I think that you're going to live once and I'm trying to have as much fun doing it as I possibly can. Now, it doesn't take much. Once this has grown, it's there. I don't have to do that much. I would be out of the golf course and 
and grind and I'd, I'd want to play and I'd want to be my best. And I don't think that the way that I looked had anything to do with, it didn't take away from me once I was at the course. I think that if anything, let's say that first year, I would be at the course too much to where I was there 10 hours a day, but it was that the lights being on and finally making this dream come true that I was almost there too much because I didn't want to miss anything as opposed to make sure that you get out there, make sure you get this done, this done, and this done, as opposed to just being there the whole day and wearing yourself out, which I had a a tendency to do. And I had some mentors that were on the tour that kind of helped me out with that and be like, dude, just go home, rest, come back here, get your stuff done tomorrow. Who were some of those mentors? Uh, Charlie Hoffman was one, believe it or not, Colt Nost, uh, he and I were, we signed with the same agent and he was pretty good at that early on as far as just go out there, get some stuff done. Um, but I like to be seen. I like being known as a PGA tour player as like, that's, that's something that I probably could have changed mentality wise, as far as just me understanding that it is, I don't need to prove anything to anybody else, but I, I liked being out there. I like signing autographs. I like being around people uh, admiring you for being a good golfer. You mentioned Colt. Uh, for people, you know, Colt was a U.S. amateur winner himself, very similar to what you talk about with Ryan. For those who may just know him as a, you know, one of your co-radio hosts, a podcast host now, what was Colt's game like at his peak? Uh, he's the best long iron fairway wood hybrid player ever in my opinion i mean i haven't i didn't play around Corey pavin but he's we'll tell he was, tiger that yeah yeah he was really really good at getting the ball pretty close on the green i think that's one thing that probably wore people down at the usm and the u.s uh public links was being farther back because Colt wasn't long. I think Colt's last year on tour, his average drive was 264, but he didn't miss a fair. He was top five in fairways hit every single year he was on tour. I think he played nine of them and he was good. He was confident and he knew what his game was. He knew that he wasn't going to overpower a course and his biggest strength was not only could he play well from a farther distance back than the average player he could putt and he thought he was the best dude in the field and he talked like it and I think that's one thing that's getting him a a lot of good press doing what he's doing today now and making the transfer he wasn't going to he he recognized that he wasn't going to be out there for ever just because of length especially with these young kids coming out and everybody bombs it everybody hits it pretty straight so, yeah, he was a fantastic long, long club player. So you mentioned him. You mentioned Charlie, which, you know, you guys, I imagine you showing up like the Bash Bros with, you know, your <laughs> locks flowing flowing out the back. Right. Uh, I mean, who were some of the guys that you were out there traveling with, playing practice rounds with on tour? I uh, played a fair amount with Graham Dillette. I've heard uh, my rookie Familiar year, I played a lot with Jim Renner and Kevin Kisner. Uh, played a little bit with Luke Donald. Luke was always very friendly to me when I first met him in 09 when you, when I won that uh, Saskatchewan Open up in Canada. 
that got me into the Canadian Open, and I ended up playing the weekend both rounds with Luke Donald, and that was the first view of somebody up close other than Ryan Moore that I was like, all right, this is this is what I need to do. He just doesn't – he wasn't great off of the tee. He wasn't great with second shots or approach shots. He was good, don't get me wrong, but around the greens he was phenomenal, and – it was really eye-opening for me. And I remember looking at a stat on a billboard when we were going up or one of the TV boards that they have at the events. And he had a seven-footer or something on the 16th hole at Glen Abbey. And it, the stat comes up saying that he was 92% inside of eight feet for the entire year. I remember thinking, I better get – I'm a pretty good putter. I need to get better at putting. <laughs> That's, uh, I mean, Luke Donald was around number one in the world right around that time. Obviously, uh, national champion at the Northwestern University, Trey, as you might re- might recall. Yeah. Uh, you have any <laughs> affiliation there? <laughs> I do. You, you mentioned Kiz. Uh, you mentioned getting along with Kiz. I mean, we're talking about Andre Gonzalez from Olympia, Washington, Kevin Kisner, Aiken, South Carolina. There might have been, it's got to be a little culture shock between the two of you. How did you guys become friends? Yeah, I think opposites attract. So we we met in college. He was at uh, Georgia. I was at UNLV. We played the Northwestern of the SEC. Yeah, go exactly. We we saw each other and we played together a lot for those years. His team was number one in the country. Our team was second for a pretty big chunk of college, and so we were just around each other a bunch. We got along. Uh, whenever they would come over and play in our home tournament in Las Vegas at Southern Highlands, they would stick around because it would be their spring break. And so they'd stick. Yeah. And it's Vegas. So they'd stick around for a few days. We'd have some fun down on the strip in the evening, but we'd pick them up in the day and take them to our courses to practice and play. And we got along with their team really well at Georgia. So that's kind of where we first met. And then we were on the road. I ended up, When I was chasing Mondays one year, they had a corn fairy event down in a place called Kinderloo Forest in Georgia. And there was also the Athens event and they were back to back weeks. And I missed one of the Monday qualifiers. And when you missed a qualifier, a lot of guys would go then to a mini tour event, whether it be Hooters tour or Canadian tour or gateway to whatever it may be, go back and make sure that you have a chance to make some money. And so I, wasn't on the Hooters tour, but I was like, Hey, I'm not flying all the way back home to come back here next week and Monday for this other Georgia event. And he goes, well, why don't you come over and you can sleep on our, uh, on our hotel room floor and you can caddy for me and you can just practice when you get done. I was like, that sounds like a pretty good idea. So I went and caddied for him and end up practicing afterwards. Cause nobody knew if I was in the field or not. You have 160 guys in a field and I'm, everybody knows who I am. Be like, Oh, are you playing in this? And be like, well, no, but I'm practicing and hitting balls. And, <laughs> right. So you were you were the warm up for Dwayne Bach, basically, is what we're saying here. Oh no, I was I was out there just making fun of him the whole time because he missed <laughs> he missed the cut in that particular event. I'm like, what are we doing? What 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 are we doing out here? And I think that's one of the great things about the friendships that you build in golf is that you can give each other grief about not playing well and like everybody understands that it is coming from a place that we we all know how hard it is it's a little more annoying when someone gives you grief and they 
are just a bystander and have no idea what the process is. So it, yeah, Kevin, Kevin's still a close friend of mine. We, I was working with you on PGA tour live and I was down at Napa this, uh, this fall and my wife is good friends with his wife and now I have a mic in his, in my hand and he's still playing. So it was, it was fun to be able to follow his group. I'm imagining now him coming to Vegas and you're like, all right, Kevin, we're, we're going to the MGM grand tonight or we're going somewhere tonight. What was your, uh, hosting other players in Vegas? What were your go-to spots? See, this sounds like we could get into some trouble. Uh, <laughs> we, the, the, Last time they were there, we took them up to this place called the Foundation Room, which is on top of Mandalay Bay. But it is an MGM property. and You can get in with the same Wi-Fi. Right. And if you can imagine the guys on the team that were that were a little bit younger, like Brian Harmon, who's going to believe that this guy was 21 years old when he's like five foot four? I don't know how tall he was, but yeah, we we would go out in the evening. A lot of times we just sit there and gamble whatever money our parents would allow us to gamble being in college. But the main thing was practicing around them and playing with them during the week was a ton of fun. Like that's, that's how you get better. I I think it's hard for the best players to continually get better and be able to find people that they can ask questions to and, and pick their brains the, at a higher level you get because there's just not that many people anymore. So for us outside of just our UNLV team to have the Georgia team there also, it was, it was very cool. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people don't know is that a lot of guys on the PGA tour are very, very friendly off the golf course. And when they're on the course, they're trying to beat each other's brains in, but that's, it's, it's a cool experience. Brian Harmon must've been a killer right around then. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I think he played the 05 Walker Cup, missed 07, and then played again in 09. I believe you're right about that, yeah. That's incredible. To be chosen for the Walker Cup team in 05, he was just coming out of high school. Yeah, I was so bummed. I told you that I got up to third amateur rank in the world, and they chose the team like a month before – I really got hot and got my ranking up to that time. So the team was already chosen. They were playing. I was very disappointed to not be on that team, even though everybody else very much so deserved it. Well, not to add to the disappointment, but I do want to, I do want to ask about one moment, Lee Williams. All right. So you're on this 2010, yeah, 2010 to 2016 or 2014. Really. You're on this every other year plan. It feels like you get your card, you go yep. back to Corn Ferry Tour. You get your card, you go back to Corn Ferry. So 2013, you spend the year back on the Corn Ferry Tour. You are was, right there. Or, or was, am I wrong I, about that? I was on tour that year. but I, You were on tour. But I lost my card. I didn't play that great. So you go back to Corn Ferry Tour Finals. That's right. You got This was a, a PJ Tour year. You go back to Corn Ferry Tour Finals in 2013, and you are right on the number when you get to the 72nd hole in that final event. And you're playing with Lee Williams, who makes a 45-footer. And what I love about the clip is you go and give him a high five when he might have just knocked you out of getting your PGA Tour card. Yeah, I love that you brought that up. Thank you. (laughs) Um, See, to me, you say 45 feet. I think it was more like 125 feet. (laughs) 
it seemed like it took forever to go in. But at the same time, he, Lee and I were friends. He played at Auburn. I knew him all the way through college. We've known each other for a while at this point. And when he made that, we were talking going up the fairways, like we got to, we got to get something going. We got to make birdies here. And like, we were both on each other's team at that point. Like, let's go, let's make a, let's make some birdies. And he made, and I, I don't look at leaderboards that much. I knew that based on how we were playing, that we were both pretty close and I want him to do well. I want to thrive off of him doing well. And I want to beat him with me playing better. So when he made that putt, wholeheartedly i was super pumped for him i i me not that knocking me out was not even in my mind i didn't even think about it i was just pumped for a friend that was chasing the same goal that i was and i didn't know if that got him in i didn't know if that did anything for him but i knew that it was going to make him some more money in that particular tournament it was going to get him a higher finish in that particular tournament give him a chance and then i had 15 feet, 18 feet left. And I didn't make it come to find out if I would have made it, it would have got me in, but it is what it is. It was one of the saddest, most disappointing days of my professional career. I was just in absolute tears and was broken afterwards, but on camera afterward, they wanted me to sit in the booth and talk about what was going on. And there's nothing I can do but cheer for everybody. I, I I want everybody to do well. I just want to beat them when they're doing well. The media man, right? Putting you in that situation, you know? You it can't is. beat him, join him now, Dre. Right. I was actually asked off camera to, if, if Andrew Loop made a bogey on the last hole, I would have got in. And his he had a very similar putt to Lee Williams, and he hit it like seven or eight feet by. And so he's got seven or eight feet for par. And like we're off camera, the host, no names will be mentioned. You can go back and look it up. But the host says it would be great TV if you cheered against him. I was just, that's not what I'm going to do. That's terrible. So, um, no, he ended up making his putt and I was happy for him too. That was his first year ever on the PGA Tour. And you did make it back to the PGA Tour the following year. You I did. It back a, a few times. And then you were on the tour for a few years after that. Right. Uh, one of my favorite stories that you told you told me, we were calling R- uh, Rory Sabatini one week. And I mentioned, I said, do you have any good Rory Sabatini to- stories? And you said you did from the Wyndham Championship one year. That was the same year. Um, okay. So I wasn't, I was 238th on the FedEx Cup. That thir- that 13th. 2013 year on tour was maybe the most tough year of my entire professional career out of the 16 years that I played. Um, I, that 13 year, I missed the first 13 cuts of the year on the PGA tour and then started to find something a little bit to where I was making a few cuts here and there coming down, but not making a ton of money, but starting to make some cuts where I at least felt like there was a little more light in my life. But we got to the Wyndham Championship, the last regular season event, and Rory asked me, he's like, how are you doing this year? Pretty terrible, Rory. I'm 238, uh, and I need to make something happen today. He's like, all right, well, let's make 10 birdies today. And both he and I shot six under par, clean round 64s at the Wyndham, uh, Sedgefield Country Club. And that got me to 198, 
which got me into the Corn Ferry Finals, where I ended up being the bubble boy when Lee Williams made that. But if I would have finished 201, I would have been going back to first stage. I wouldn't have been going through Corn Ferry Finals. And that was that was a huge thing. He was very supportive of me. Every birdie that I made, he was like pumped, just absolutely pumped. I made the first one. He's like, all right, nine more. I'll make the second <laughs> one. All right, let's make ten more. And yeah, I will forever be grateful for him that day because he was he was class. And I've heard a lot of stories very similar to that about Rory, that he is very encouraging when when guys aren't, you know, playing up to their level. He has his quirks, but he certainly has a unique personality to him. Right. What were some of your other maybe more memorable rounds on the PGA Tour? Uh, my highest finish was in Mayakoba, fall of 2014. And that was just a very proud round for me. It's Mayakoba doesn't really set up well for my golf game. It's fairly narrow once you get off the fairway and then it's just kind of jungle. But I, I drove the ball pretty well that entire week. And under the pressure, uh, I shot four under – no bogeys the final round to finish second to Charlie Hoffman by two. And I really had a chance. That was probably one of the best chances that I had to win on the tour down in Mayakoba. I went the last six holes and didn't make a birdie, but I had a lot of looks and lipped out a couple. But I was just very proud of the way that I stayed in it mentally and didn't let my mind race. I, I really liked the way I handled myself under the pressure and the situation. What did Charlie say after that? That I can't beat him. <laughs> he goes, I don't even know why you thought you could. You can't beat me. Did you guys play together in that final round or were, uh, were you? No, he was behind me. I was a couple groups ahead, but I played well that day and moved up and was just slowly gaining. Uh, I think I the closest I got was a shot on the back nine. I think I tied him on the front at some point, but yeah, Sean Stephanie finished second. I think Danny Lee tied for a third with me. Who, who would get you excited if you were paired with a particular player on the PGA tour, who got you pumped up? Ooh, that's a good question. Other than Rory Sabatini. Uh, Could have been Graham. Yeah, I mean, I, I, any, anybody that's my friend. No, it didn't really matter. I I enjoyed playing with everybody. And once you get out there, everybody's pretty similar. Like, yeah, you're going to get pumped. And, like, if the lights go on because you're playing with a high world ranking player, that does it. But once you get out there, the other guy in the group doesn't really exist. Like, he's there. He's keeping – pace with you yeah exactly but i think you'll hear most players say this like a lot of times you'll get done with a round and you'll be having lunch or something like some other player will be like who'd you play with today like, uh, i mean most of the time you know but there's oftentimes you're just like i don't know somebody and then somebody else like well let, let me ask you this do you remember playing with someone who you realize there was a bigger crowd because the, you were playing with that player. Yeah. Uh, I played with DeChambeau 
uh, a fair okay. bit, like right at the beginning of his career. And he was like this big guy coming out. But I remember thinking. NCAA champ, USAM right, champ. Right. I remember thinking, why are there so many people here? <laughs> I remember thinking that's that was a little interesting to me that that many people wanted to follow him because he was he was quirky. He was, yeah, he was interesting. Wasn't real social with anybody. And when Mm -hmm. he was, it was a little socially awkward. So I always found it a little bit intriguing that he had the following that he did, but there, there were, there were always groups around me. I was never in a huge group. If I can think of it, the the biggest crowd that I was ever in was at the U S opens, but no, nothing, nothing stands out. I wasn't, I wasn't the guy that was in those groups there, Jeff. You weren't in featured. We talk about a lot of featured groups now, right? You, but I'm imagining you and Bryson. Bryson is this little skinny kid with his quirky hat on and you're just looking twice his size out there. He was good, man. Yeah, I th- I thought that he had a lot to learn just as far as how the business was going and and being able to control himself. I wasn't a big fan uh, when he first came out, but I was a big fan of his golf game. Holy smokes, that guy could do stuff with the golf ball that I didn't that I couldn't do. He hit it really far. His ball, just with his little one-hinge swing, it doesn't really curve. So if it misses right, he pushes it, it just goes straight there. If he misses left, he's pulled it, just goes straight there. Like all of his ball flight is very straight. And, I, yeah, I was pretty impressed with the way that he could play golf. Obviously, he's still doing it quite well. You talked about yourself, you know, doing things with your personality, establishing yourself, kind of having your own brand. When did you realize – you had fans out there on the golf course. Just when people start to know who you are, I think that's it's cool when you get somebody that's yelling your name. I think that's it's got to be tough for some players. Like, there's no way that Tiger just goes out to the grocery store and gets his own groceries. I can't imagine that that happens. Maybe it does. Could could you do that, or would you? Get oh, robbed? easy. Oh, I could do it easy. <laughs> No, but when people start screaming, like people yell Phil's name all the time too. And now it's Max Homa and Joel Damon and all these new players. But when you get recognized, it's a very cool thing. And it's something that everybody waits for. You want to be recognized for what you're good at and what your skills are, whatever your profession is. And when people do that, it's it's flattering. So yeah, that's that's the main thing. When people know your name... That's when I first felt like I kind of made it. Would they just say Dre or would they call you by a nickname? Uh, Dre or Half Man, Half Amazing or whatever it may be. Uh, Rick Riley really made Half Man, Half Amazing a, a big thing. The U.S. Open that year at Congressional, I started to get recognized and I probably gained 20,000 followers overnight from his article. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, now yep, people yeah, know me. Great. Roy was shaking in his boots with you. Oh, he had to be quivering. (laughs) I thought you also, some people would call you a a particular television character. Yeah, Kenny Powers. That was his fault too. (laughs) He put in that I look like Kenny Powers in that article. And instead of yelling mashed potatoes, as soon as I'd hit a ball, people would yell, Kenny Powers. (laughs) 
Maybe that wasn't one that you leaned into as much as some of the other things. No, I, I don't really care for when anybody, I don't mind that people called me Kenny Powers. That didn't bother me. I just find it very annoying when anybody yells anything after somebody hits the ball. I don't know why it's. Well, I, I want to talk about with that, you know, you're, you're now on the other side broadcasting. Yep. How do you see the game differently being on PGA tour live PGA tour radio, wherever else you get sent in this world? How do you see the game differently? I find it more entertaining now when guys are starting to lose their mind. You don't see it very often in professional golf, but knowing that you're constantly trying to control that as a player and when somebody starts to unravel a little bit out of frustration or anger or discouragement, whatever it may be, I, I feel for them and I want them to control themselves. But at the same time, I get real joy and entertainment when I see somebody going a little crazy. And that's, that's what we're looking for, right? Is a story now. And that's what it is. You're, you you understand, or at least I do now, that you're constantly looking for a story or an angle on how you're going to present what's going on on the golf course. I mean, do you almost feel like that's sacrilegious as a player? You know, you might have been all player-focused, player-player. No. No, nope, that's the job. <laughs> that's, that's the job. I got to transition from being a player to a journalist now, and that's – that's the major, right? You guys, you got to. You were a journalism major at UNLV. I know. I'm, I'm starting to finally put it into use. Everybody's <laughs> like, what do you do? Journalism. You use it? No. But now, now we're doing well, it. You started, I think you and Doug Smith started around the same time, fall 2021, doing actually Q School, if I'm not mistaken, calling yeah. Q School. I think he and, had one event before that. Yeah. Something around there. But you guys, but I know that's around, you know, it's now been about two years. How have you gotten better yourself just figuring out how to do this job? I think a lot of it is creating a conversation where you're not using as much fill, um, uh, like just anything of that sort. And then learning how to prep or what I need to prep for. When you get thrown into it, you're, there's no real coaching in this business. You just kind of get out and figure out what, you think people want to hear and I never knew how to prep for it or what I'm looking for is statistics and knowing that the host is going to probably give more of the statistics and then the analyst is going to give the ideas on what the players are actually thinking and then the rhythm as far as going through in studio and then throwing it down to somebody on the course and coming back making sure that you're not stepping on each other but I think the biggest challenge that I have is how can we make it not so redundant? How can we create a different story or a different angle to where we're not going to be putting forth the same broadcast as they are on NBC or CBS or whatever it may be. Um, trying to make everything original is probably the biggest obstacle or hurdle that I have now. Yeah. Well, you're, you're talking about a lot of that from the PGA Tour Live, which on ESPN Plus, we're streaming, we're on the air for hours and hours and hours. You're on the air. I mean, if it's the two of us calling featured holes, it's us for most of the day. There aren't as many commercials there. We're not sending it to other people. It's a lot of us on air. And you in particular, 
you're not going to necessarily be that whisper broadcast that might have been a lot of golf broadcasting years ago. So how do right. you offer your own unique individual perspective to that golf broadcasting landscape? Well, I think a lot of it is just trying to have fun while you're doing it. You have to make sure, especially on featured holes, you're following near the end of the day the same hole over and over and over. So now it has to be what's the only variable that's changing? It's the players. It's the group. Whatever insight you have on those players, and that's one thing that's nice about being a player, and that's one of my skills about being an analyst is I know a lot of these players. So now you're going to try to create some kind of story in the 11 minutes that you have with this group on your hole. And I'm going to try to tell you a story and entertain you as the audience. But at the same time, I'm going to try to tee you up with feedback or questions that, that and it's the same as you, your, your job is constantly trying to tee up the analyst and create conversation. I think that's the same thing for an analyst to try to help make the broadcast or not the broadcast of the, the host feel more comfortable and, and more engaged in, in what you're doing. Well, you asked me once last year, you're like, I don't know, like, am I good? You were kind of saying, I was like, Dre, they wouldn't keep hiring you. They wouldn't keep assigning you things if you weren't good. And I think to your point, you know, I know if we're doing featured holes and Andrew Putnam's coming through, I'm like, I know that Dre is going to have some good stuff right now to talk about Andrew. Like he knows what Andrew had for lunch last week, probably at the course. So I'm trying to toss to you and set you up to give some of that unique perspective. And it's not just Andrew, but obviously you've played with a lot of these guys. So it's that ability in my mind, this isn't the question, I'm more just talking, that you have that ability to offer an inside opinion as a fresh, as a player that just played with a lot of these guys that other people don't have to offer. I think it's very cyclical too. Let's say we can look at NBC this week. They just came out yesterday that Paul Azinger didn't get his contract renegotiated or re-signed. Uh, you're going to start tweeting at them for, for the job. Uh, it doesn't even matter. <laughs> I, I'm just saying it's cyclical as far as the job because there will be a point when I don't know any of these guys. I haven't played with any of these guys on the golf course. And I think that's a good thing and a healthy thing for broadcasters to be aware of that unless you're special and you can really set yourself apart, let's say like a David Faraday who was funny for so many years and then maybe at some point that kind of died out, you're going to be replaced and you kind of have to, it's, it's a lot like the tour. You're always going to have young rookies coming up. And so what can you do to make yourself stand out? What can you do to make yourself better? Are you making people better around you? And if you're not, you're probably not going to be in the game that much or at least that much longer. Hmm. Okay. How about uh, the game of PLT? Look at your shirt right now. Oh yeah. I want to address, I want to address big, big rollouts happening right now. Big things happening. What is PLT? Uh, PLT is a lifestyle clothing brand we also sell beer up in our region of the world of, in the pacific northwest yeah you got to sell beer that uh, beer and gear that's what we sell beer and gear so uh i partnered with a few different people it's actually called plt golf um stands for professional leisure tour you can check it out at pltgolf.com but we are a lifestyle apparel brand that gives 20% of our revenues to 
different charities. We gave a hundred thousand dollars this year, and our goal is to give five hundred thousand dollars this upcoming year. But it's a it's a membership type business plan where right now, if you go to our website, you can buy a pro pack, which is going to have a box full of goodies. And then out of that 500, a hundred dollars of it goes to charity. And our line actually comes out the end of quarter one of 2024. So we are in the process right now of making sure that we have all of our SKUs and our inventory ready to go for when everything starts to ship. Are those ex- words you thought you would have used two years ago? No, it was no. I, I'm in a big learning process right now of figuring out how to run a company. I'm fortunate enough to have a good group of people that have been very successful in the business world. Um, we have a founder group of a hundred people, and all of these people are called our Founder 100, and they have donated, but it's an eclectic array of very successful business people, athletes, ex and current. We have front lines, workers, firefighters, police officers, nurses, and we call them all of our professionals and our athletes and they're part of the tour, but kind of creating a little social network of people that we can all rely on that are good in their own spaces. And it's, it's been pretty fun so far. We just had our first launch party this last week and we'll have quarterly events. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty fun deal and I think that we have a pretty cool niche to go out and start raising money and giving it away to a bunch of different charities. Well, I know talking to you even last week when we were trying to set this up, I, I understand you're passionate and you want to you wanna prioritize it. So you want to make it work. I get it. And it looks fresh on you right now. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so we're... For, for those watching on video. Yeah, beer and gear. That was the uh, sales point for me. He was like, yeah, what do golfers like? Uh, to make putts? No, beer and gear. All right, I'm sold. I'm in. Let's go and uh, make this huge and let's take over the world. Another off the course question, you being a dad, obviously, you know, being home now a lot more than maybe you used to be, you're able to be present. Do you have the kids getting on the course? What is, what is golf dad life like? Yes. My three-year-old Odvar, he is probably the most into it. He wants to go out and hit balls and just whack them nonstop. Now we haven't really seen any talent emerge yet. Like we're probably a good one for eight and striking the ball. All right. But Tiger Tiger was a little more advanced at three, but all right. Oh yeah. Yeah, I that's one hundred percent for sure. The girls do it and they take lessons. I think they're thinking that the assistant pro is pretty cute. My girls are eight and seven. And so they're more into it for their friends and listening to the assistant pro talk more than they actually care about hitting golf balls. But yeah, they have clubs and they're going to start out young and we'll see if they want to do anything with it. But as far as anybody goes in coaching your kids, you just want them to have fun and, and get exposed to it. And if they want to take it any further, then I'll be here to, to help them do that. But just get, get them exposed right now. I know your son has a, has an outfit that you got him from the masters. So at least I know he, he, 
he can wear, he has the right clothes to wear on the course. Yeah. He's got the masters, some U S open, some PGA stuff. Like when he goes out there, he looks fresh. <laughs> if you're going to, you can't go out there. If you look bad, if you look bad, you play bad. Uh, Dre, we've talked about a lot today before I let you go. I just want to know if you could go back till, I don't know if it's, the kid version, the teen version, the college version, the beginning pro Andre Gonzalez. If you could tell him something, what would you tell him? Don't ever stop believing in yourself would be what I would say. Because the only person that can stop you from doing it is you. And the only person that can get you to do it is you. Very journey of you. Yeah, yeah. And any New Year's resolutions coming up by the time we release this? New Year's resolutions. I don't really. I'm not golf. Very New good Year's at... resolutions. What is what is your what is, what's going to happen in 2024 for you? What's your goal here? Uh, my goal is to make PLT golf take over the world. I would like to possibly have my own show on Sirius XM at some point okay. with a with a co-host, and then I I'm enjoying doing what I'm doing right now. It's just enough work that. I can be at home a fair amount. And as far as getting more work, it's a, it's a double-edged sword because the more work mm. you get, the more you're on the road, especially with kids. And that's one of the reasons I stopped playing was to be around my kids a little bit more. So I like being able to do radio and daytime talk radio because I can do it from my house. So that, that's a big deal for me. All right. Well, Andre Gonzalez, uh, you gave me way more time than I would have expected. So thank you very much. And thank you for this might be this might be the pilot for the podcast. So thank you for that. I love it. Jeff, thank you so much for having me on. And I look forward to seeing you when we work on PGA Tour Live, my friend. That's right. See you in St. Augustine. Cheers. I want to again thank Dre for taking over an hour to talk with me about his career, life, you're in gear, as you heard, and a lot of the other things that's going on with him. He could have gone on. We could have gone on forever. He's got so many incredible stories, especially niche stories about some obscure PGA Tour players on the road. And, uh, you know, it's not just the PGA Tour players. It's the lower tours. You heard those stories that he has been a part of. He is an incredible guy. There will definitely need to be a second or third or fourth episode with Andre Gonzalez. I want to say one more thing before I wrap up here. If you've listened this long, thank you so much for doing that. If you are a potential brand sponsor, I don't have any sponsors. So I'm just going to throw that out right here. If you are interested in sponsoring this podcast, Eyes on Golf, if you like what you heard, please feel free, feel free to reach out. My DMs, everything is open. You can find my email pretty easily. Uh, it would make, you know, it would, it would make my life. It'd make me happy to have some extra money to be able to pay for this podcast and everything that goes into it. But, you know, just think about that. As for the listeners here, I can't thank you enough for sticking with me through this first ever podcast. I hope to have so many more coming, so many more interviews coming with some of the compelling figures, or at least people who I think are compelling figures in golf. If you have critiques, I can handle it. Hit me in the DMs. Hit me in public if you really want to uh, in the Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, whatever sphere you go down. If you like this podcast, give it a like, give it a review, give it whatever you can on whatever platform it is that you listen to your podcast. Until next time, I'm Jeff Eisenman. Thanks for listening to Eyes on Golf.